0: Okay. All right. Good, good. So um, I don't know how many of you have ever lived overseas. I know some of you come from different countries and you're here now. My guess is that if I asked you for stories, interesting language stories, you would have plenty. We could spend a lot of time listening to your stories. I've had plenty of of my own, Uh, the one that is perhaps most comical, when I lived in Budapest, Hungary, and I would go uh, shopping every now and then. When I first arrived, I was looking for some eggs, could not remember the word for eggs, and went looking for them, and I was in a huge store, but I just couldn't find them, so I finally decided I'd go ask for some help, but of course I couldn't think of the word. So I acted it out. As best as I could, like an egg, you know, a chicken laying an egg, and grab, grab, grab the egg, and uh, and was directed, uh, as I remember, to the eggs themselves. I remember the word now; it's toyash. I have no idea why that sticks in my head. Perhaps from that experience. But if you've ever been overseas or done much traveling in a culture that's different than your own, you know what a barrier it can be—not just cultural values, but even language itself and one of the beautiful things that God does in the Bible as he says look language as we'll look at actually does exist as a barrier and we'll take a look at why that happens but the gospel the good news of Christ removes all those barriers and because that is true it testifies that God is real some of you maybe have had experiences I know Like me, where you're worshiping with people who don't even speak your language. And there is a sense of intimacy with God that cannot be reproduced. Even in a place where you're understanding absolutely everything. And that's because God has knit us together as a family. Even though our language is different as one. As brothers and sisters. And we look forward to a day when those barriers no longer will exist. And God says it's coming. And he proved it by sending Jesus. And isn't it amazing in John chapter 1, Jesus is called the word of God. He makes God intelligible by sending, wrapping in his flesh, his only son. And removing the barriers between man and God and man and man. That's what the gospel is all about. Now in the meantime, in this church in Corinth... Uh, That was a young church and just learning what it meant like to walk with Christ and to live faithfully before God. There were people in a very cosmopolitan city who came from some different types of backgrounds gathering together and they're learning what it looks like to walk with God. And Paul told them God has given each of you gifts and those gifts are not just for you, they're actually for the common good of the church. And as the Corinthian church was trying to learn about what that is, they had kind of gone a little bit off in their practice of some of these things. It's not surprising. A lot of them came from a background of mystery religions, where there were mystical experiences. And Paul is trying to say, this is what the gospel, this is what the God of the Bible says about the gifts he's given you that are spiritual gifts for the common good. And he talks about that here in this passage, and it's, it's an interesting passage. If you're somebody who's not grown up in church, you might think, what in the world is going on here? And if you're somebody who's grown up in church, you might think, what in the world is going on here? Um, this is one of those passages that uh, I'm guessing some people never address. It could be a passage that some churches never leave. Uh, it just is, it's one of those passages that has an interesting history even in the church. But what it's about is two things, really. It's about speaking to God, and it's about speaking to men, and the gifts that God has given us. And he talks about two gifts. As Eric read, you heard these two repeated gifts that Paul was talking about. What what are these gifts? Well, the first gift that he mentioned is the gift of tongues. And in this passage, if you look back at all those verses, if you have your Bible open in front of you, you'll see that the summary of what Paul says here about these two gifts, and and as he contrasts them, is this. Tongues, he says in verse 2, is spoken to God. And you see the contrast here. Prophecy is spoken to men. Tongues spoken to God, in verse 2, it edifies the individual. There's something very individual about the experience of what Paul calls tongues. And it's a spiritual experience, he says. That's something that's... It, it is an experience of sort that doesn't involve, he says, the mind. It's, there's nothing uh, acutely intellectual about it. And the purpose of tongues, besides edifying the individual... Is for people who come from the outside into the church if this is happening. It's actually something that is for them if it's interpreted. And perhaps you know the history of tongues even in the New Testament. Maybe you're unfamiliar with that. But in Acts chapter 2, when God's Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, The disciples are gathered together and there's tongues of fire and they begin speaking in all kinds of different languages. And some people who hear them say they're drunk. They've been a little bit tipsy this morning. You know, they're getting started early today, aren't they? These crazy Christians over here. It's the only way I can explain it. But then somebody else says, hey, look, check it out. They're speaking in my language, bro. They're not drunk, they're declaring God's praise in a language they didn't previously know. And therefore, the nations that were gathered together heard the gospel, the good news, that Christ is the Son of God, and he's the Savior of the world, and you could know him in their own language without the Microsoft Translator app (laughs) that we have available for you right now. I don't know how well it's working, if it's batting 100% or 80%, but for them, they did not need... The technological app because God's spirit was at work and these followers are speaking in a foreign language throughout the book of Acts which is very much about it's kind of a nationalistic perspective the Israelites said we are God's chosen people and and God is saying look all the way back at Genesis no I called somebody Abram Abraham who was not an Israelite, he was a foreigner, I called him to myself and I said, you'll be the father of many nations. Now go and show people what that is. And the Israelites, of course, like so many, get in a comfort zone and they don't want to share that. They want to be God's special people. And Christ comes and disrupts all of that. Of course, the prophets, by the way, had been saying it the whole time too. No, the nations, the nations, But we like to create our own special places and usually get together in things we feel very comfortable with, oftentimes even language. God says, no, we need to upset all that. So in the book of Acts, then, part of what it's thematically talking about, God is for everyone. And those who were non-Israelite, the Gentiles, often demonstrate the reality that the gospel is for everybody by speaking in tongues, evidencing that in fact Christ is true. And that was their purpose because others would look around and say, it's not, not just a fabrication, it's real. And that's the backdrop for Paul and 1 Corinthians chapter 14. He's saying if, you know, when we talk about the church, we're talking about the gathered people of God. Why does it exist? Part of it is for you to be equipped. And part of it also is for people who do not yet believe in Christ to come in and see that God is real. And if you're not interpreting those tongues, they're going to draw the same conclusion people did back in Acts chapter 2. These people are crazy. I knew it. I suspected it. now I'm certain of it. And Paul says that's a problem. So instead, he says, let's talk about as well prophecy. And prophecy, he says, is spoken to men in verse 3 for strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. It's it's something that edifies the church in verse 4. And therefore, he says in verses 5 and 13, it is actually greater and preferred. He says, I'd rather you speak five intelligible words than 10,000 words somebody can't understand. And therefore, it is for believers as well as unbelievers. That is, unbelievers if it's interpreted, and for believers because there's some sort of edification that's going on that everybody can understand. Or, sorry, unbelievers because they can understand it, as well as believers for strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. Now, what is the gift of? Prophecy, and uh, on the whole, I would suggest it's the ability, as Paul says here, to strengthen, comfort, and encourage the people of God through the proclamation of the written word of God. Primarily, it involves foretelling, which is talking about the truth of God in a contemporary context. Now, when you think of prophecy, you think of foretelling, that is declaring God's truth, or foretelling. Some people think, oh, let's talk about the future. And the Bible does contain that as well. If there's a foretelling aspect, we're told that you can know whether the person is true or false as to whether or not that actually comes true. And if it doesn't come true, it's kind of a rough go for false prophets. So if you even take that view of it, then there is a test later for whether or not it comes true. But on the whole, and it seems like especially since Paul is talking about intelligibility, I would suggest what he has in mind here is intelligible words that are spoken to the congregation in a way that strengthens, encourages, and comforts them. That's prophecy. And then we can say, based on all that we've suggested, that the gift of tongues is one of two things. Um, A, speaking in a language unknown to the speaker but known to the listener. And that's what we talked about that we see that happening and there's prophecies back in Joel foretelling that one day Acts two would happen, and people would start speaking in languages that testify to God's glory without need for interpretation because you understand it and that would be quite a sign wouldn't it if you were to speak Russian here this morning and I started speaking in Russian, <laughs> telling you that God is real, um, you would probably be convinced on a certain level. It's if you know that I don't know Russian because we had a previous conversation and thanks my spasiba or whatever, which is probably unintelligible to a Russian apparently. It's supposed to mean thanks. You'd be convinced or at least amazed. But B, and this is the part that some people have different ideas about, Paul suggests here that there's that interpreted language but then also based on this passage, a mysterious, intimate, unintelligible, spiritual communication with God, just based on what's here in the text. There seems to be some sort of personal edification that can go on where you have this conversation with God, and it's expressed in, in a way that nobody else around you could understand, You might look at Romans chapter 8 where sometimes we're told the Spirit intercedes for us with groans that we just don't get. Now what had happened in this church context is that second definition of tongues, that second expression of it had become central and was being practiced in such a way that people were looking around saying, I don't know what's going on. And so Paul's saying, simmer down just a little bit here, people. If you're practicing that, It's great for your personal edification. But it's not to be on display here in the context of corporate worship. Because gifts are for the common good. And tongues without interpretation, they're not. So if they're interpreted, they're assigned to the unbeliever God is real. And Paul, on the whole, wants the church to be built up. And he wants individuals to be built up. But with the gift of tongues, he says... When you prioritize your own edification at the expense of everybody around you, it's counterproductive. Do these gifts exist today? Go. You know how you do that sometimes on Facebook? Like, plumbers, best plumbers, go. <laughs> Greatest soccer player of all time, go. Messy. And you just have your arguments back and forth about that or something. Do tongues exist today? Go. Well, let me just suggest to you, if you look back at, at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I don't have this up, up above you, but uh, or for, to look at it, at the PowerPoint. When Paul was talking about love, in verse 8 he says, Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. We know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. So theologians look at this and say, when does perfection come? When perfection comes, then there'll be no more tongues, there'll be no more prophecies, there'll be no more knowledge. So kind of the debate point is, when is perfection? When does that come? If you read on, it goes on to say, when I was a child, I tasted, I t- I tasted like a child. I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So I would say exegetically that the door is still very open to this. My own understanding of this is that perfection is when everything is wrapped up and we are fully known. And not everybody has that same uh, opinion or understanding or conclusion about it. And even within our own denomination, there are some different ideas about this. But I do want you to understand, you know, we're 50 years old as a denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. And back in 1974, there were a lot of churches that were having some experiences that focused on something phenomenal or experiential, well beyond the scope even of just speaking in tongues. I don't know if you've been to a service before where uh, it seems like people are saying God's spirit is unleashed and and all kinds of things are happening. Uh, I've, I've been to a church like this before where people were barking like dogs and running up and down the aisle and being slain in the spirit, and people were whooshing the Holy Spirit on me. I mean, like, get it, brother, get it. And I, I mean, I'm like, okay, if this is of God, bring it. And I just sat there. Like, nothing happened. I'm like, and, and it made you feel a little bit like a subpar Christian. Am I, really, am I really, you know, filled with the spirit here too? And Paul talks a little bit about orderliness next as well. Now, we Presbyterians, we like the orderly stuff. <laughs> we love that kind of thing. But Paul, it's interesting here because there's a mix going on in Corinthians of, yes, yeah, some structure and also kind of not. Um, you know, we 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 try to do our best to honor what the scripture says. But a lot of us have a particular tradition. It's like we've got our own home. We like coming there. We've heard this illustration before. I like the way I decorate. Well, my wife decorates our home. And, you know, I have a minimal input. It's mostly like... Paint it this color, she tells me, so I do it. And the input is like me taking up the paint and putting it on there. Do you like it? Yeah. If you like it, that's fantastic. So, but I decorate my home. It's got the smells of the food we like. And I might go over to your house, and it's wonderful. But at the end of the day, I want to go back to my home. And denominations, churches can kind of be like that. It's like you have some different cultural expressions, some different things that feel like, oh, this feels like home. That can be good. But Paul's talking about here some of the times when your home kind of needs a little bit of cleaning. You know, somebody comes over and says, well, you're going in the wrong direction here. And the, the Corinthians were doing that. So our denomination released a statement back in 1994 about this whole uh, issue, especially of uh, the, the Holy Spirit, and, and in particular the gift of tongue. So I just wanted to let you know what that was. So they say this, um, any view... Of, of the tongues as, ex, as experienced in our time, which conceives of it as an experience by which revelation is received from God, is contrary to the finalized character of revelation in Scripture. In, in, in other words, they're suggesting that if, if, if tongues, even if it's interpreted, is adding to God's word, if it's not just reinforcing what's already been said, that's not a God. There's not more revelation needed God's declared everything so even when you do sort of prophecy like I would argue a pastor is supposed to do I'm not inventing new stuff I may be trying to apply it in the context where we live this context is very different than the one that Paul was writing to but it's still God's word and it means the same thing it's applied in all kinds of different ways for those of you who've been walking with the Lord for a long time don't you read a text and say huh I never noticed that before. But you've read it a hundred times. That's because God's spirit is, is at work making his word alive and active. And sometimes you may, might feel the conviction of the spirit. Sometimes you need the comfort of the spirit. Same text. But not new revelation. It's not as if somebody's speaking in a tongue and says, okay, God is no longer a Trinitarian. And God is, has pronounced that he is a Cincinnati Bengals fan. And if you're not, you're under judgment. <laughs> Now, that would be adding to God's word. Number two, any view of tongues which sees this phenomenon as an essential sign of the baptism of the Spirit is contradictory to Scripture. There are some traditions, for example, that suggest you become a follower of Christ, and then you await a second baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is evidenced by speaking in tongues. And that is a point where um, we as a denomination and, and my understanding of scripture would be different from other perspectives. Uh, that it, and and some, of a lot, some of it's exegetical. Some of it's even just observational. I mean, the, the idea here is that you enter into a deeper uh, experience of God that's evidenced by change in your life. And I've seen people who have done this definitely haven't changed in their lives very much afterwards. So you scratch your head and you think, I don't get it. But I think exegetically, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, there's reason to believe that when you say yes to Jesus, when you say, Lord, come into my life, that Holy Spirit comes as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come right then. And there are continual fillings then of the Spirit along along the way, um, but it's not as if you haven't received the Holy Spirit. I mean, just one one consideration here. Here's a a passage in, in Titus chapter 3.15 where he says, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. That's a lot of Christian language going on there. You're justified by his grace. You're made right right with God because of what he has done. And the proof positive is he's poured his spirit into you. And then the third statement they made back in the 70s. Any practice of the tongues phenomenon in any age which causes dissension and division within the body of Christ or diverts the church from its mission is contrary to the purpose of the Spirit's gifts. And it's, you know, unfortunate sometimes that this even conversation within church circles becomes divisive and is therefore again counterproductive. People believe very strongly about some of these things. And we're doing the best we can to say, okay, what does your word say? When I use the word exegesis, that is sounds so fancy. It just means pulling out from God's word what it was intended to say to its original hearers. And people still do that hard work and come to some different conclusions. What I would suggest is wherever you stand on this, remember that Paul begins this whole section by saying, follow the way of love. You know, he, he, in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, you've all got gifts. The problem is, if your gift is maybe more up front, you might think you're better. Than somebody who doesn't have that. And so he does a lot of work to say, no, 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 we're a body. We're a whole unit. Each part matters. And he knows that we can have that sense of superiority so much that he says, let me take a whole chapter, as we've labeled it, and talk about love. Because if your motive isn't love for any of these things, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much you speak in tongues. It doesn't matter if you speak in a million different languages if you don't have love. None of it matters. And so we have to remember that's the motive here behind any of this. And we want to, you know, practice this in in a way that's faithful to, uh, to what God is saying. And so those are some of the guidelines, at least, that are provided there. And you can see that it leaves open still some possibilities. And let me just suggest to you that Paul is continuing to talk about some basic principles. If you're like, what in the world? Why does this matter? What... One is, we are encouraged always to make the gospel intelligible and to remove any barriers from comprehending it. Paul has been making this argument for quite a while in Corinthians. That's why sometimes when we use just very religious language, we need to make sure we try to define our terms as best as we can. If there's somebody who comes in and says, I have no idea what you're talking about, We want to be able to say, well, let's explain it. That's kind of what prophecy is making God's word intelligible in the gospel. It needs to be accessible. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about how hard he works to remove any barrier from people hearing the gospel. He's very flexible in the application of that. And he talks about that quite a bit in this entire book. Let's remove barriers from people comprehending it. And that's part of what he's saying here too. Be intelligible in what you say because that's what the gospel is. God declared himself in the final word, which is Christ. And then also another principle is that the primary way people respond to the gospel, the good news, is through exposure to God's word and God's people over time as the spirit desires. So is something that uh, the senior pastor of the church we were planted out of, used to talk about all the time, just encouraging us that people need constant exposure to the word of God and to you over time as the spirit desires, okay? In, in other words, there's only so much we can do. Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians 3. Somebody plants a seed, somebody sows it, but God calls, he, he makes it to grow. Our responsibility is to sow and and to plant. And what I think is interesting is that Paul just talked about love. You know, how are God's people defined? They'll know we're Christians by our love. love. Yeah, they'll they'll know you follow Christ by your love. The motive of love. All the Bible summed up in two commands. Love God and love others. And if you wonder what that looks like, Listen to last week's message or just read 1 Corinthians 13. It talks about love, the primacy of love, what it looks like. It's very selfless. If you call yourself a Christian, you should be selfless. You should aim towards selflessness. Look, none of us is there, but we know that over time, God is beginning to work in that, that in us. Some of us have slower growth curves than others, but that is what we are to be defined by. I know that for some people who come from different faith traditions, we can maybe say, let's debate about what we think the source of authority is. And there may be a time for that. But most of the people who are Muslim background believers, that is, they followed Allah, and now they follow the God of the Bible, have come to that faith because of the love of people who they thought were their enemies, who instead were selfless toward them. Could be your neighbors, you know. And you open up your home. Go get halal meat, by the way. Ask them what what you can eat. And just open up your home. That is a demonstration of hospitality. And as he did, as pointed out in the training this weekend for English as a Second Language, when Paul uses that word, it's actually hospitality, not to each other, but to the stranger. That's what distinguishes somebody who is a follower of Christ It's easy to like the people who like you or who are like you. So exposure to that love, but also God's word, of course. In in fact, that's what Paul is arguing. We need to have intelligibility. We need to make God's word clear and let God's work do its work in its time, in its way. The word of God is living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It is what? Penetrates. It's what divides. It's what exposes, as Paul says here, the secrets of the heart and lays bare that, wow, I need to be made right with the God who created me. And we all are on a journey for understanding what that looks like, of course. And Paul, on the whole, in Corinthians, and I think in this passage is underscoring that basic principle. And he says it there at the very end about God's word in verses 24 and 25. If an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everyone is everybody's prophesying, he'll be convic- convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he'll fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Wouldn't that be cool if that kind of thing happened here? We're just bringing, you know, was it Delano who talked about uh, preaching the paint off the walls or something, like whatever, and someone just, God is really among you. Let's pray that happens in the declaration of God's word. But that's not something we control. That's God's spirit. And then the third principle I would suggest from here too is that our walk with God is both intellectual and experiential. There is content. You have to have faith in something. You gather information. And Paul labors to say, here is who Christ is. He walked among us. This is what he said. It all fits together. But he also says, it doesn't matter how wise my preaching is. If God's spirit isn't active, it doesn't matter. And he says, you have the mind of Christ. And that mind works out in all kinds of different ways. You have a different approach to God now, too. And it's not merely intellectual, gather information. There's an experience with God. And part of what happened here is the experience was being elevated, speaking in tongues, at the expense of the intelligibility But sometimes what people do is say, well, since I'm afraid of that, let's just get rid of that. Let's just become a giant brain (laughs) and let's study theology and let's debate tiny little points of it so much that it just, you know, can, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin while people are going to hell because they haven't heard the gospel and it's, it's a both end. We, we, God has made us rational beings. He's given us a word that we read. He's given us a guide. And he's also invited us into relationship. And relationships, by definition, are experiential. I can prove it again to you. Remember with love? Remember how I started off? And I said, if you bring flowers home to your wife, and she says, why'd you do this? And you said, because somebody manual told me I had to. That's the intellectually right thing to do. Now, do you think that relationship's going to go very well for long? Because there's, love is more than that, right? It's, it's something experienced, and, and the Christian walk is the same. And there's, it's mingled together here, even in First Corinthians 14, the experience of intimacy with God. Now, I want to go back for a moment and take you back, back, back to, toward the very beginning of things according to what the Bible says. Most of you know the Bible says in Genesis 1, 2, and 2 that God created everything and we had intimacy with him. Good communication, not only with him, but with each other. And then sin in Genesis 3 enters the world and there's a tremendous break in all those relationships. Now sin, sin really messes things up. In Genesis chapter 6, Every inclination of the human heart was evil. And God said, restart. Um, and sent the flood. Uh, Noah and his family and all the animals are rescued. And, and then we find Genesis 6 through 9, that whole occurrence. And then there's Genesis 10, the, the table of nations. Like the, the new earth, kind of a, a, a reset. And then in Genesis 11, right? It's almost the next thing that we read there's already problems again. Listen, listen to what Genesis 11 says. Here, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So immediately, in this new experience, man again is seeking to make a name for himself. Now, in the Hebrew, your name is attached to your identity. It defines who you are. So they're really trying to to create their own identity. And there's tremendous unity and potential here. One speech, one set of words. That's why one of the language courses you can take is called Babel, right? Because back here, according to the Bible, is where things really kind of went south. Man, is that unified. But that unity fed their pride, let's make a name for ourselves, significance and value based on what we do. Their worth, their identity is attached to their achievement. And that's always shaky ground, by the way when your identity is attached to your accomplishments. If you succeed, you give yourself credit, and you become very proud. And if you fail, well, then you either blame others or maybe you beat yourself up. And that's true if you're a student, a musician, an employee. And they're important parts of what we can do, but they don't establish our identity. And here at Babel, self-sufficiency has replaced the need for reliance on God. And they're reaching to the heavens to prove their status. They don't need God. And in fact, they can reach him on their own. They're going to storm the gates of heaven. And here's what happens next. The Lord came down to see the tower, the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said as if one people speaking the same language, they would begun to do this. Then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused. Babel is a, a, a word of confusion in Hebrew. The Lord confused the language of the whole world, for there, from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. <clears throat> God confuses their language, man's project fails, and these barriers arise. And this is where you know the language differences and even cultural differences start to arise. So instead of comfort and security, which man said he can do on his own, man is dispersed and unsettled. And the frustration that we feel from cross-cultural confusion is a product of the Tower of Babel. The reason I look like a fool acting like a chicken in Budapest, Hungary. It can be traced back to this right here. And maybe it seems like God feels threatened as you read this, or that he's limiting man, taking away his full potential. But God has known from the beginning freedom and thriving always have boundaries. Always. Way back in Genesis 1 and 2. Here's a great garden, but don't take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's harmful to you. And yet we do it. And the harm comes same thing here too Just if you have this common speech careful you might become proud and they do it in fact he had told them to scatter but they wouldn't do it on their own and so they he makes them scatter here which is what they were supposed to do, do anyway you know the ten commandments they're not just rules to be followed they're ways for you to thrive you know this with your own body If you want to be healthy and thriving, do you think, I have no boundaries? And so can you eat whatever you want to eat without any consequence? If only. See, this is what heaven's going to be like. Right? A big banquet table and none of the calories. That's fantastic. But until then, we have to watch what we eat. We have to exercise. Because that's how we thrive. It's not that God's threatened, but he knows that Man is in jeopardy. And the confusion of language, which is what he wanted, leads to their scattering. And then, as we've already heard, the barrier of language and culture would become the stage on which God displays the beauty of the gospel in a new community with a common bond. And the bond is Christ, his son. Even if language is something that still maybe is not... Understood by all, you enter the family of God and you speak with one voice. I love this passage in Romans 15 where Paul says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other in relationship that Christ Jesus had. So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has a project of his own. He's making a name for himself by calling together a new community and a new people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation to praise him in common worship as members of his family. And Paul says when we speak from God's word, that is the message that you need to hear. Where does that happen? I think it happens here. It happens in the context of Brothers and sisters coming together. There's also a cosmic version of this that we're given in places like Revelation 7, where heaven's peeled back and we see a worship service like what's going on right now. In every nation, tribe, people and tongue is worshiping God. In Revelation 21, there's a, a tree with the healing for the nations. And anything that divides us, I'm sorry, Microsoft Translator app, you will no longer be needed. But even even with that language barrier, brother and sister, if you call on the name of Christ, you're in my family. And the language we speak is the language that God has given us of love for the Savior. That's our common language. I don't care where you're from. If you confess that Jesus is Lord, if you rely on him, I claim you as brother and sister. I claim you as somebody who is worshiping God with me in one voice today. Today. And I look forward to the day when we don't need something like an app. But in the meantime, we're going to be walking together in this journey and experiencing the gifts that God has given us that build one another up. The Tower of Babel project, their desire was to exploit their unity, and that led to a fractured diversity. And God's desire is to take people who are diverse and make them unified what the gospel's about. Man can never actually reach heaven. So heaven came to us and declared he was intelligible in the person of Christ. Man could never perfectly obey all God has commanded. So God wrapped himself in flesh and he walked with perfect obedience. He did what he could not. And may that reality today be for your strengthening, your encouragement and your comfort, no matter what tongue you speak. Father, I pray you'd see fit to give this church the gifts of the Spirit that please you most for the sake of the common good and that the reality of the gospel would be so profoundly displayed that even maybe those among us now who say, I'm not quite sure, would see that you are who you say you are and that they would say yes to Christ, that they would know the beauty of becoming a son or a daughter of God and entering into the family of God. Whatever may be a barrier, Father, we pray, would be removed now from that. That you would take away our pride and that you would show us the beauty of a Savior who gave his life for us so that we could enter into the family of God and with one mind and one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, how we long for that to be the case, Father. and pray that you'd make it so. In Jesus' name, amen.